All right, you're listening to the Thunder Underground Podcast. My name is Trent. I'm Jason. And we're here with another episode. And this week we've got a chat, a rather long chat, with Jason Gerlardi. From Dead Metal Society, uh, ex-Caroline Spine. Yes, also Amped. Yes, Amped. And New Science. And we get into all that stuff. And if you're not familiar with Dead Metal Society and you're into uh, 80s rock and metal, you should really check them out. They cover all the stuff from the glam era to the, you know, Iron Maidens and the Priests, I think, and all that kind of stuff, you know, as well. They even do a full-fledged version of November Rain. Yes. Come on, people. (laughs) So be sure and check them out. They play all around this area of the country, you know, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Missouri, Kansas, I think. Yeah. And he, of course, was in Caroline Spine, which both of us were pretty big fans of yeah definitely and we get into all that stuff um it was good probably hour and i think 40 minutes probably yeah 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 it was cool that he was just one of those uh it was just easy conversation uh you know and it it would branch off and like we said you know we we put our notes up the first five minutes yeah we knew you know and uh we just were very honored to sit down and talk with him uh it was a good time yeah, great guy. We sat down at Drumworld with him because that's where he works. So thanks to, to Drumworld for that's letting right. us do Shout that. Shout out to them. And if you uh, are a company such as Drumworld and you would like to sponsor us, shoot us a, a message and, and sponsor us. We'd be more than happy to to talk about your, your business or your product. Definitely. And, yeah. Hit us up online at thethunderunderground.com. We've got... A YouTube channel now, which is The Thunder Underground. Click on that and subscribe. We're going to have videos coming. Um, by the time you hear this, we'll probably already have videos up. And uh, we've also got Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the essentials, and those are all linked right there on TheThunderUnderground.com. And thanks for listening, and let's get into this talk with, with Jason. teacher here for yep. 13 years really mm-hmm. was that something that you just someone asked you to do or you just decided hey I want to do this yeah I've been play? playing drums since I was seven never thought of teaching anything like that um, when my band Caroline Spine took a break back in 2003 I'd known the guys at Drumworld and I knew the owner Matt for a while and he yeah, said yeah. you ever think about teaching and I laughed at him like I'm not a teacher, <laughs> and he said, "Well, what what he's look what he was looking for at the time is all the guys here at the time, great teachers, great players, but they were all school taught, like like had teachers when they started and, and learned that way. Where I self taught myself, and I was the only guy who was touring and really doing it. And he goes, we'd like to bring a teacher in that has that experience, where it's not just all about teaching. It's about if someone calls up and goes, I don't need to learn all the you know foo foo stuff. I just want to learn to rock." We can give them to that guy. So I said, well, I'll try it. And, yeah. I mean, literally flying by the seat of my pants the first couple of years, didn't know what I was doing. And, um, you know, now 13 years later, I've got a, you know, I teach about 50 students a week, and I've got a good little program how I do it. But I just really, because I self-taught myself, so I had to think about yeah. 
all the ways I learned the stuff I learned the hard way, either by watching other drummers or talking to other drummers or just learning stuff by hit or miss on the road, what worked and what didn't. So that really helped me kind of, you know, figure out what to teach. Um, and then you just get in a, in, a, in a flow with it, you know. And obviously certain students are more responsive and actually do their homework and some students don't. But it's all about if they're having fun, I'm going to teach you. You know, it's not about the paycheck. It's about I love, and it's made me a better drummer. Mm-hmm. I remember after the first six months of teaching, Caroline Spine had a practice again, and they were impressed with just how much tighter I got. And I realized because I had to bring myself back to the basics because of my students. And then I realized a lot of stuff I had missed or overlooked or bad habits that had formed. So my fellow musicians noticed that I was getting tighter just by simplifying and going back to where it all started. So it's been, it's been I learn new things every day. You know, just teaching everything from eight-year-olds to 60-year-olds, you know, it's it's an adventure every day, and I knock on wood that I get to be around what I love to do every day. <clears throat> That's what I was going to ask, is it all, so you got all ages, it's not just a... All ages. Young, you know, like a young thing? No, uh, most of my student, uh, majority are 12 to 15, but I've got some students in their 50s and 60s, some that just always wanted to play, never got a chance to, or some that used to play, or some that have been playing that want to learn from someone else to just you know send them in a new direction stuff like that so it's all different yeah. i prefer the ones that have like never touched drums just starting at <laughs> ground level no bad habits right. you know and all that stuff but the hardest thing for me as a teacher when i started was since i was seven this is all i wanted to do in a bad way i put all my eggs in one basket you know i didn't learn another trade i didn't go to college now luckily it worked out for me that that is not the norm most people don't get the success i've been lucky to have in my life um, so when I first started teaching, I approached every student like, like me. They want to be future rock stars. They want to, and I realized for a lot of students, it was a hobby. It was, I just want to play, get aggression out, whatever. And I, that changed my mind thinking, okay, as long as you're having fun, I'm going to teach you drums. Whatever you do with it is up to you. But in the beginning, that was hard to be like, what do you mean you don't want to practice 10 hours a day? What do you mean you don't know the names of all your favorite drums? What do you mean you don't, you know, and. Back in our day, we had to go through magazines. Now it's so easy. One button, you find out everything about a band you want to know. So that was a little bit of a learning curve. But now it's just all about if you're having fun, I'll, I'll teach you. <laughs> was, you know, you said, you know, you just kind of flew by the seat of your pants. Like, can you, do you remember the first student or like the first week and like what you It started out with a do? couple people I knew whose kids wanted to take lessons so I was familiar with the kids and it was literally just getting to know what kind of music and then it was like well let's try and learn this song or let's try and learn this part of the song and then I realized okay before we even get into songs got to learn basics Um, one student in particular was one of the very first students I ever had he was six years old and I usually don't teach under eight because I always say you're never too young to start playing drums but sometimes you're too young for lessons this kid was six years old, and at six years old, could play. Double bass, loved the class, loved Zeppelin, and loved like everything, Iron Maiden and Motley Crue, and, and all, at six years old. I still teach that kid today, and he's 18. Wow. And he's become, he looks at me like a mentor and, a, and kind of a brother he never had, he's an only child. And now we're at the point where it's like, I've taught him almost everything I can, so now we talk a lot. He, picks advice now he's starting to get into bands what do you do with recording so seeing this kid grow up and thinking wow I've had him since literally one of my first five students and he stayed with me like wow I was doing something right but I'm looking back because I keep notes of every student I've ever taught 
So I look back sometimes, just in case, like I'll have a student take five years off and come back. I like to be able to know what I already taught them and where to pick up. So I'll look back sometimes at old notes and just be like, how did these people stay with me? I mean, what? (laughs) But I guess they didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. So again, a lot of them stuck with me. A lot of them are still, you know, I didn't teach them very long, but they're still good drum friends of mine that I got to see grow up and, and become more advanced. One student, this, this guy in town named Justin Barber, he actually plays in Nine's other band, The Addiction, uh, was one of my very first students. And he was at the point, he was wanting to learn a lot of stuff like Tool and um, a lot of progressive rock. And I was like, dude, I love that. I don't know how to teach it. So we just, I, need, I said, honestly, you need to find a more advanced teacher. And he did, but we remained friends. We clicked. And to this day, we're still great friends and I have a lot of respect for him. He's a great drummer. But at least I was honest with him, and I didn't want to just take his money. I was like, you need to find someone who can teach you what you want to learn. Now I can teach that stuff. But back then, I was just like, yeah, I love Tool. I don't know what he's doing, though. <laughs> you know, or like, I can't write that down. Or So, yeah, I mean, it was just – it's hard to remember exactly all the first, first ones. But a lot of them from the early days have I'm still friends with, and I still keep tabs on with Facebook of how they're doing. Most of them don't play anymore. But the wow. ones that do, you know, they keep going. Well, that was that was kind of my next thing is, you know, how how do a lot of these students stick with it or a majority know. of them don't. Majority of them, they go to college, yeah. drum stay at home. Uh, majority of them realize, wow, there's work involved and there's homework involved, and I don't like this anymore. They think I'm just going to go in and rock out. And there are teachers in town that will let you do that. There are teachers in town they'll take any age. They just play on my kid for half an hour. Okay, great. I'll see you next week. But you know, and that's fine if that's how you teach. You know, there's a lot of great teachers in this in this town who take it very seriously. And I just wanted to be one of those guys who took it seriously. And if you're going to pay me for a service, I'm going to teach your child or you to the best of my ability. And hopefully I can teach you what you're wanting to learn. You know, and if not, if someone wants to get into jazz, stuff like that, I'm not that guy. I appreciate it. I respect it. I've never been a jazz teacher. So I'm not going to waste someone's time. I'll refer them to our, drum t- our jazz teacher. Um, but again, if and it doesn't have to be just rock. If they just want to play drums, I just love it seeing that you know seeing them come in every week and they have that smile on their face because they finally got that beat that I gave them, you know, and that means a lot to me. That makes me go home with a smile on my face. So it is rewarding the handful of students you get who put in that extra effort. <laughs> yeah. But I have made really even on the young, I've made good friends out of this too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really good with kids and. Um, it's just helped again the ones that stuck with it to see them grow with it, and the ones that have just to see, haven't stuck with it, just to see them grow into an older person, an adult. Is and I got to be there with them when they were really young, and we're still friends. It's just a really cool thing. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I like what you said about you know, from twelve to fifteen because you know I took guitar lessons, and especially in that that's the age where you look forward to every lesson. Yes. And you you want to. Sh- show your teacher every lesson of what you did Mm -hmm. and it's just that hunger and it's something about that age 12 to 15 16 you know it's a it's a magical thing you start realizing what you have a talent for and what is calling you and and, you know and i appreciate the ones that maybe they'll try drums for six months and go that wasn't it i'll try guitar i'm like whatever you do just play an instrument yeah and if you can learn more i only learn drums my regret is when i was younger not learning piano or at least to have that core of note values and stuff like that so I tell them, you know, uh, learn as much as you can. Even if you take a month of piano or you take bass lessons, whatever. Whatever main instrument you have, knowing those other instruments makes you better at that main instrument. Where you hear all the time a guitarist trying to talk to a drummer, the guitarist saying, well, can you do that, you know, boom, boom, bap, bap thing? 
and the and the drummer's going, well, can you do that dun, 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 thing? You know, neither of us know the notes or anything. So if you can learn more instruments, even if you don't play it primarily, it just makes you a better musician in a band and makes you appreciate what you do that much more. Yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned, uh, like, the progressive style, and you you could teach it now. Like how many Not perfectly. Well, <laughs> you could teach the basics, you know? Like, yes. Like, how many different, I mean, how broad of a spectrum do you think you can teach, like, like any style of rock or I, I'm not gonna say any style I mean if again to not waste anyone's time if a student comes in with something um, that is something that I have trouble playing I'm at least at a point where I can break it down for them mm -hmm. and go this is what they're doing let's slow it down and they'll say now it's up to you at home to keep practicing and get it up to speed uh, but I'll teach them how to pick a song apart and learn it in sections and you know and just slow it down get it tight so I'm not saying I can teach every you know we, we said tool as an example I can't teach every tool song I can't teach every rush song there's still things I hear and go I don't know what he's doing but I'll at least tell a student hey you know this section right here this is great even if you never play this song what he's doing in this part can help you with other songs so you know I'll never sit here and go yeah I, any song you want to know I can teach it I'm just honest someone comes in and it's more advanced for me I'll do what I can I'll watch videos I'll do what I can to help them but I'm just honest I'm like this is beyond me I'm gonna tell them that but 90% of my students bring stuff in that I can handle and a lot of them like you know parents grew up teaching them you know listen Motley Crue and ACDC and all that and it's right on my alley yeah. <laughs> you know a lot of the new stuff kids are bringing isn't so much technical as it is fast you know, there's just a lot of speed involved, and I'm trying to I, teach them. I get that. Get yeah. the groove. Be a drummer who plays every speed, because my biggest thing I always say is, even the fastest bands have slow songs, and the slow bands have up tempo songs. So when I was younger, it was all about playing fast. And when I joined the band Caroline Spine, I almost got fired because they had some slow songs. And before them, I was in like a thrash metal, almost sounded like Anthrax type band. Yeah. So everything I did was fast. And I'd start the song at the correct tempo and speed it up. And I almost got fired. And I tell my students now, I had to spend three weeks doing nothing but practicing slow tempos. I said, don't ever look back and go, oh, why didn't I practice that then? It's hard with young kids getting to slow down. But once they see, you learn it slow, you keep it tight. Then when you speed it up, the tightness follows. And you'll be more appreciative of what you're doing. It clicks. Not with everyone, but it clicks for most of them. Well, you know, there's that old adage, sometimes it's not what you say. Or, you know, it's what you let breathe or what you don't say. Exactly. No. Exactly. There's a great, um, someone told me about this. It was like a cartoon <clears throat> or a drawing. And it was like a drum audition. And on one side was this giant drum set. Guy comes in and just rips it up. Plays a thousand miles a minute. Every Hits every drum you could possibly think of. When he's done, the guy watching him goes, you're awesome. Next guy comes in, small drum set. Just lays it down, groove, simple, nothing flashy, no big fills. And the guy watching him goes, you're hired. <laughs> so it's like you can play all the flash and everything you want, but if you can't groove with a band, if you can't make a band sound good, if you can't know, play what play for the song. And it took me a lot of years to learn that too. Um, you'll, you won't get anywhere unless you just want to be a solo drummer the rest of your life. Yeah. You know. That reminds me. I we got a lot of stuff to talk about and stuff, but I'm just I'm liking this. It just reminds me of something. Uh, Killswitch Engage, uh, their drummer. I read an article and he, you know, I, I would, I, I would. They're pretty technical. They're mm -hmm. heavy. Mm -hmm. They're fast. Yes. And he 
he his whole thing was I want to see what you know, I want to do the most with the least the simplest kit and the you know and to me that was just awesome yeah because you know you've got you know boom 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 three or four things and he's he's making it sound like you know it's, oh yeah it's Nick Menza back in 1989 mm-hmm. and that's just ultimate respect and that's another thing I tell my students make the drum kit work for you I'll yeah. say I've seen many amazing drummers on a crappy drum set that cost them $200 at a pawn shop, but they rip it up and beat the crap out of that. I've seen horrible drummers on a $4,000 top-of-the-line kit. They had money. doesn't make it better. You know, it's learning how to tune. It's And even with my students, they're always like, oh, I've got to upgrade my kit. I go, no, let's try putting new heads on it and tuning it. <laughs> how about we make it sound good first? And you'd be amazed. Most of them come back and go, wow, it's like a brand new kit, and they get motivated again. So that's the big thing. Don't let the kit dictate you're drumming. Be the best drummer you can be. That way, if you do upgrade down the road, you'll appreciate it more. You'll know how to take care of it. You'll, you know, you'll know how to tune it. You'll know all that stuff. So, yeah. just you know, be the best at what you have. And if, if money is a limitation, you can only afford a certain thing. Doesn't mean you're going to be less of a drummer. And same thing with guitars or anything. If you can only afford a, a cheap guitar and a cheap amp, practice the hell out of it. I mean, you know, don't let that limit you, because you can always down the road. You never know what's going to happen down the road. But do you have any kids that have come in pretty young that couldn't afford a drum set? I mean, oh yeah. So do you still? I mean, how do they? We actually recommend work outside of you know the lesson. We especially if you're younger, we recommend. And a lot of people who call Drum World are very amazed that we say this, but we say you do not need to own a drum set to start lessons because first we say give them a month or two, make sure they like it and they're going to stick with it before you spend anywhere from 200 to to 1000 dollars on a drum set because a lot of parents are like oh we got him this nice kit two months later the kids like I don't want to do this anymore and they just lost half the value on trying to sell that kit yeah. so we tell them in the beginning if you don't have a kit I show them ways at home to air drum play on pillows because in the beginning it's more about the motions the independence the counting instead of the sounds um, and then you know I'll have kids that come in that have crappy drum sets and they're not motivated and I said hey I've got three other students that would kill to have your crappy drum set and they're practicing their butts off what's you know what's up with you <laughs> so you know it is a thing so regardless like I said I had one family that kid was with me for a year great kid every time they had money to buy a kid something happened dad lost his job and then they saved money had it mom lost her job you know, so something just kept happening but the kid stuck it out finally got him a kit and six months later, the kid's like, I'm not into this anymore. So, again, it's just different. You know, everyone's different. Everyone thinks they come into it. I want to do this. I want to do this. And then they realize it's work. Yep. And, the, you know, the strong will survive. And just like anything in life, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. Yeah. You know, I say the more you practice, the sooner we can get to cool stuff. <laughs> that's true. But that's, you know, you have to have a lot of patience. And you have to individualize your students. You have to. Re- you can't just have a blanket. This is how I teach. No matter what age or what level you're at, this is what you learn. No, you got to tailor it for your students. Or if one kid's having trouble and advancing slower than another, you've got to be able to work with that kid and keep it fun. You know. So that's why I say that was a big thing of taking me a while to get my grounds with teaching of learning all those things, different ages, different personalities. I've had nine-year-olds catch things better than fifteen-year-olds, and vice versa. You know. Right. So everyone's different. Well, how, how did it work for you at the age of seven? Did you have, like, a family member that had a kit, or did you no, just ask for a kit? No, I, uh, my, nobody in my family has rhythm, <laughs> except my mother, and I don't know if you, you know, my mom was an actress in Funicello, and right. she uh, was big into dancing, and 
had a lot of records out, and when she was in the Mickey Mouse Club, she played snare drum. And I guess I never met him, but her grandfather was the type of guy that could pick up anything and just play it. Yeah. So that's where I trace my rhythm to. No disrespect to my brother, sister, or dad, because they've supported me a thousand percent. Not a lot of rhythm, not a musical family. It was a very Hollywood family, and I mean yeah. that in the nicest thing. But I always loved music. I mean, I got in, and being in L.A. and uh, growing up in L.A., I got to see, in fourth grade, I was going to arena concerts to see Kiss and Molly Crew. And yeah. uh, my first drum set was... A Muppet drum set. I mean, literally, this that I think Christmas Day my brother broke before I got to sit down and actually play it. Um, <clears throat> but I just remember in between that, I remember vividly at my grandma's house, she had the folding chairs that had the soft mats on them to sit on. Being a Kiss fan, I would set up 15 of these things in a circle, grab literally grab her salad forks and put on Kiss Alive or whatever and pretend I was Peter Chris and play on these. And finally they're like, we need to get him a kit because he's breaking my chairs and he's breaking my salad forks. <laughs> so I got my first kit and just slowly upgrade. I got a little bit better of a kit, slowly added on to it, birthdays, Christmases. And I eventually got to the point when I was, in, um, I think in eighth grade, I had this giant double bass Mike Portnoy looking kid <laughs> with a Tama Cage, <laughs> cymbals hanging upside down, Queensryche style. Um, Awesome. Looked great in my room. Never pl played it out because I had nowhere to play it. Yeah. <laughs> Till the first time in high school, we had like a talent show, and I brought in like, man, this thing's a pain in the butt to move. But <laughs> I just kept progressing, and I kept uh, teaching myself new things. And I had a really good ear. I was lucky that I was able to listen songs and learn them. So how I learned is I would everything from Iron Maiden to you know all that stuff. Put headphones on, pretend I was in the band, play along. Yeah. Um, and that's and then I finally got a teacher when I was. 13 I didn't like the guy mean old guy wanted to teach me jazz I'm like this isn't rock this isn't what Tommy Lee does I don't you know and finally found a teacher and I was 15 who was a great guy was a friend and a teacher and said hey you can play but you're doing everything wrong I was sitting wrong my kit was set up wrong I was holding my sticks wrong so he really helped me get rid of the bad habits um, and then when I graduated high school instead of college because I knew I that's what I wanted to do I wanted to go to a music school so I went to Musicians Institute in Hollywood, um, and I got a teacher to help me get into it because to get in there, you had to record a drum solo, which I had never done. You had to have basic understanding of some reading. So he helped me with all that stuff and the audition and the resume and all that stuff. Uh, still keep in contact with that guy today through Facebook. Um, and that helped me, and then year of music school, and a year after that was done, I joined Caroline Spine when I was 18 and started hitting the road. So again, that's why I say I was very lucky. I put all my eggs in one basket, right. but it worked out. And I tell my students, a big thing people don't understand when you're younger getting into music is if you want a career in music, it doesn't have to be playing an instrument. Uh, take some business classes. Get into managing. Get into um, start a record label. Uh, whatever. I mean, there's so many things you can do in music without necessarily having to be a musician. Have stuff to fall back on, you know, in case... You may be in the greatest band in the world and you break a leg and you're toast or the band breaks up or whatever. Yeah. You know, just don't pigeonhole yourself and whatever you listen to now may be different in three years. So keep your ears open. You know, when I was younger, it was if it didn't rock, if it had a female singer, I didn't want to hear it <laughs> until Lita Ford came along. There you go. I was like, hey, this chick can rock, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's like, uh, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I had a point, but I forgot it. <laughs> well, like, going to the Musicians Institute, was that, like, how big of a difference did that make for you, do you think? 
in advancing your... You know what? I could have taken a lot more from it than I did. Um, when I graduated high school, I was just burnt out with school. I didn't, I didn't want to do school, but my dad was like, you know, I know you want to be a musician, but you got to get some extra schooling. Do something. And I heard about Music Institute. I'm like, okay, right. perfect. I'll, uh, dad, how about this? He's like, hey, at least you're excelling your craft and you're learning more about your craft. Fine. And at that point, it was only a year uh, schooling thing. So I went to that, and it was cool. All the tables were slanted, made of rubber, so you could play on the tables. Um, and I kind of, instead of immersing myself into it and saying, I'm going to learn everything these people have to teach me, I picked and chose because I was still burnt out from 12 years of Catholic school. Um, and so I learned reading. I learned you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, made some good friends from it. Um, but looking back, I should have immersed myself in it more. I should have really taken the opportunity because it wasn't cheap that school even for a year so i should have immersed myself i should have taken the opportunity i was given more but i think it was just wrong timing and all i wanted to do was be a rock drummer and i was like i don't why why do i take jazz class I, you know again looking back i see the importance of everything the school had to offer but i just wasn't in the mindset to to just give it everything you know so i learned a lot from it and years later i learned a lot that i of what I should have done. Um, but it was a good experience. I was very happy the teachers were great. Um, nothing bad to say. I just I have only bad thing to say is about my work ethic while I was there. And then the band started and we just started doing that hardcore. And luckily, you know, I was in a position where I did have family support. You know, my mom was always 100% supportive of my drumming. My dad was always I wish you'd be a doctor or a lawyer, but if this is what you enjoy, I'm just happy you're happy doing something. So it was that kind of support, but it was always supportive. Yeah. You know, it was never like, no band, you know, always had band practice at my parents' house, always practice, you know. So there was never, you need to go and get a storage shed and practice, or you need to get out of here. I mean, they always supported me, so. So, like, it was literally right after you got out of, out of school that Caroline Spine started? It was like, pretty oh. much, yeah. Um, school ended in June or whatever. Uh, and that summer I was with this thrash metal band. We played, like, two shows. Um and a friend of mine, one of my best friends at the time, said, hey, my sister is dating this guy in this band. Um, and at the time, I was really getting into the, the Pearl Jams and the Sound Gardens and all that Seattle grunge stuff that was coming out. And I really liked the fact that it had a heavy edge to it, but there was melody and vocals yeah. and people could actually sing uh, instead of the high register Queensryche Iron Maiden, which I still love that. And that was singing for me, but to hear in a lower register, and the lyrics weren't so all about chicks in the back seat and wizards and <laughs> warlords. It was stuff that, you know, especially at a kid in, out of high school, it just really hit home with me. So he said, this band is kind of Pearl Jammy, if you had to. He said, and they might be going on tour with Smashing Pumpkins, and they might be and I'm like, okay, you know. Yeah. Well. So he gave me the first CD, which the very first Caroline Spine CD, our singer Jim, did everything on, did all the instruments on. I was like keyboard drums and synth and all that, but did all the wow. instruments on. And I was like, wow, this guy can sing. There's still a heavy edged, hard rock edge to it, but there's just more going on. And I see something like this taking me further than the thrash metal band I was yeah. in. No disrespect to those guys. Um, so I had to audition. And they, I didn't know it, and they didn't know at the time, they were all four years older than me. So I was 18 at the time. So my dad at the time had a really nice house in, in the Beverly Hills. and. Uh, they all come and they thought it was my house. So they, I heard this story later. They pull up like, wow, this guy's got it going on. He's, you know, and so I open the door. I'm like, hi. 
And they're like, hey, we're here for the audition. Is your dad home? Like, no, it's me. They're like, come on upstairs, you know. <laughs> and the best thing, our guitarist Mark Hall always said, he goes, dude, you opened the door. You were this young, short, little 18-year-old Italian-looking guy. He goes, but you got behind the kid, and all of a sudden you were 10 feet tall. Because I wanted this so bad that I learned that CD back and forth. Wow. And they came in. They're like, well, what songs do you know? I go, you tell me. I know everything on this. And not bragging. I'm not a pompous person. I'm not like, yeah, I'm the best drummer you're going to see. But it was like, I did my homework because I want this gig. What do you got? Let's go for it. And right then after, they're like, okay, you got, you got the gig. Let's move on from here. <laughs> and that's, that's, and we went through a couple different members. And, um, but that's what started it. And, you know, my family was like, wow, he's in a band with like a singer and some melody. We like this stuff. <laughs> you know, again, they hated the band I was in before, but they were just happy I was happy, you know. <laughs> but that's how Caroline's, but we formed in L.A. Our singer and guitarist uh, went to Loyola Marymount College and um, met there. And then just started touring. Little, you know, little yeah. by little. Yeah. And just started building. Well, where, where in that point, where did the Oklahoma connection come about? Our guitarist, Mark, our singer, Jim, who was from Phoenix, and our guitarist, Mark, who was from Tulsa, who okay. were the roommates in college. Okay. Um, and actually, Mark did a little guitar work on that first Spine CD. So, formed in L.A., the original two guys in the band, the original bass player and original lead guitarist, were the founding members of Warrant. Before really? the warrant we know, with Janie Lane and everything, before Warren wow. ever got signed, these right. guys were in the band. Okay. And That's after right. a couple months, we played a couple shows under the spy name, and they didn't share the same vision. They didn't see it going where we all did, and I'll never forget the meeting of me and the other, because they were the new guys too, sitting on one side, our singer Jim and our guitarist Mark sitting on the other side, and these two guys were like, we're out. And Mark and Jim look at me, and I go, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. I'm totally happy. This is awesome. <laughs> so then we found a bass player in L.A. named Lewis, and we did a couple mini tours. We did, like, Arizona and Colorado. And Lewis, great bass player, but just the road was not cut out for him. He was not happy. He missed his girlfriend. He's like, I just I don't like doing this. Yeah. So we continued touring as a three-piece with our singer Jim playing bass and singing. Yeah. Mark, our guitarist, said, we should go through Tulsa. I've got this high school friend named Scott Jones who said he'll book us some shows. Great. So we played. Our very first show here was, um, oh, it's drawing a blank now. The Eclipse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we, oh, now someone's probably going to correct me on this, but I think our first show we opened for Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey. Okay. I think. The only one there to watch us was our guitarist grandpa and Scott. Um, and then we played the Hofbrau on 18th in Boston. No one was there, but we got we got a thing where at that time we were playing three hours straight, no break. Even if there was two people in the crowd, we just enjoyed it so much. So that helped the word of mouth of, you've got to come see these guys. They just play nonstop. They do a couple medleys, um, and that just helps spread the word. So we need a bass player. We said, Scott, you want to join our band? He goes, I don't play bass, I play guitar. Well, you play bass now. <laughs> so we gave him a bass. We said, if you're serious about this, we will pick you up at 6 a.m. on your driveway. Quit your job. Leave your girlfriend. You have 24 hours to do this. So we drive by his house 6 a.m. figuring he's not going to be there. And there he is asleep on his driveway. And he's like, I'm ready. So he would literally learn like four songs in the van on the way to the next show, get up, play those, and then Jim would play the rest. And then the next night, Scott would have five songs down and six songs. And it grew from there. And then that was the four piece that everyone came to know. Yeah. But he's that still a ripping funny. guitar player, but it's funny. He didn't play a lick of bass and ended up being what I consider one of the strongest rock bass players out there at the time. Not only playing, but showmanship, and he put on a show. 
Yeah. You know, he was like a Muppet out there in a good way. <laughs> that sounds like something you'd see in a movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. The movie yeah. at the end of your driveway thing. Yeah. Oh, literally. <laughs> and he's like, my girlfriend's not happy with me, neither is my job, but this is my dream. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's so awesome. at what, you know, jumping forward two or three years, I guess it would be, at what point did you realize it was starting to take off, I guess, like when Sullivan started getting airplay? Or like, how it, did you... How did you guys realize? Before that, we had an independent label out of San Diego called Anza Records. We were the only band on it. It was basically our singer's, one of his best friends, basically put a lot of money in, started this, got a lot of recording gear to help get Caroline Spine off the road. And, or off, you know, off the ground. And then he was going to use that studio and record local bands in San Diego and stuff like that. So that was the first time, like, wow, this guy with money believes in us this is pretty cool so we recorded our indie cds and we just toured we did everything without management um without a record label without anything i mean all our own um and busting our butt we would literally play a town every four weeks until we built that town up then it would become every six weeks so i would go break a new town so seeing the crowds grow was the first thing um and then and I give a lot of credit to the Edge radio station here in town. They were one of the first stations that played us before we ever got signed. And I'll never forget guys like Hondo and Greg Kozak coming to our shows when we would play the dugout in town on 71st and seeing them like, wow, these DJs from this major radio station are at our show. What, what's going on here? And then we started getting play, um, again, before any labels were coming to us. Um, and that was, was really good. And I tell a lot of you know my students and young bands, do everything you can on your own before you have to go to help. Before you start giving someone 10%. Yeah. Do every, because what happened was when the label started coming to Caroline Spine, we were in a position to say, we've grown this much on our own without your help. What are you going to do for us that we can't do on our own other than money? So we kind of had that. We weren't cocky about it, but we were just like, we're doing really well on our own. So what are you going to bring to the table? So instead of like, oh, the first label comes along, yeah, we'll take whatever you give us. Oh, we have to sell all our rights. To okay, sure. We didn't have to do that. And our, our singer, Jim, had a really good business mind, um, and he knew what to watch out for. And so the deal we signed was what we felt was the right label. Oh, and before we ever got signed, um, Doc McGee, who yeah. in the 80s was the manager. You know, Molly Crew. Molly Crew, Scorpions, Bon, bon Jovi. Jovi. I mean, yeah. he was the manager. Um, he was managing a few new bands coming up, like bands that were doing Warp Tour and stuff like that. Um, he came to us, and uh, which before any labels or anything, and I, of course, knew him, being a huge, I'm like, Doc McGee wants to talk to us. And he really liked our drive, really liked our passion, really liked the fact that we were getting all this radio play with no label support, the fact that we were willing to tour our butts off and do six shows in a row, three hours a night, and, not, and drive ourselves in the van and all that. So he took us on. Got us opening 11 shows for Kiss, <clears throat> which a dream come true. Oh, yeah. And um, he got us the label interest. So that was just to have someone <clears throat> on our side like that, of that notoriety, was awesome. So, I mean, this might sound like a cheesy question, but, like, how did that feel going from building up to being on the road with probably was that your favorite band when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, it, it was more playing with them every night than on the road with them because right. it's funny we'd get in our crappy little van and trailer and they oh, got yeah. on their jet yeah. but <laughs> but yeah. the experience of seeing you know again going to arena shows all my life and here you know a lot of kids grew up in Tulsa we didn't have an arena for a long time so even yeah you had the Ford Center and stuff but as kids what parents are really going to drive you two hours to see right. so 
my parents were real cool, and, and my dad, he, he, he is still an, an, a, uh, an agent for actors, and he would get through his company tickets to stuff. So I remember, like, the first concert, he took me. He goes, well, I'm not doing that anymore. He'd make his assistants <laughs> take me. And then I got old enough that I could drive. So to be on tour with Kiss, to be playing these arenas was just – I mean, every day we'd walk into the arena, and I would just sit in a chair and watch the guys set up the Kiss stage. And I would go help clean Peter Chris's cymbals. And they're like – my band would be like, you don't even clean your own cymbals. Why are you – and I go, these are Peter Chris's cymbals. Are you? you know. And, um, so I was like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. And just being in an arena and being like, oh, my God. Four hours from now, this place is going to be packed, and we're the opening band tonight. You know, I mean, this is insane. And I remember the very first show we did with them, the very first song we play, ended the song, and you're just waiting. Are we going to hear, boo, or are we going to hear, and I just remember hearing that sound that you heard from all the live albums when you were a kid, that, and I, we just looked at each other. Well, not that close because Mark seemed like he was a football <laughs> field down the stage, you know. But And I was like, oh, and just goosebumps. And then we got to do it 11 more times. I mean, just wow. you know, eating, you know, catering with them. And so then, you know, we never got to do the arena thing again. But then we got to do tours with Sebastian Bach, like places like Brady Size. Yeah. Um, Queensryche, we did a tour. And all that, you know, never took it for granted. We were always very appreciative. Every day we woke up that we got to do this. And we were smart about money. Um, we kept a fund, so we were at the point where if we blew a tire, it wasn't, oh, I guess we don't eat tonight. It was, okay, we've been saving up our money. Let's get, get a new tire, new brakes. Jason broke uh, a symbol. We need to get him a new symbol. You know, so yeah. we did it very smart in the sense that it wasn't like, we just got paid $1,000. Let's go spend it. It's like, no, let's take 700 of that and put it in this account and you know, share a hotel room or whatever we had to do. But that, because of that, we, we actually were able to live on the road and, and not have to do the ramen noodle thing every night. I mean, you know, in the beginning it was, but we had some family support. All our families were behind us, and that, that helped a lot. That's, that's smart because, I mean, most of the time you hear the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had to eat slices of bologna or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's super smart. And it was, you know, we'd read all the, there was a great magazine out at the time, The Musician's Guide to Touring and Promotion. And this magazine listed every single city in the U.S. The clubs there, what clubs had their own PA system, capacity, record stores around. So we're like, okay, we're playing this club. Here are the record really? stores around that we got to go hit to see if they'll sell our CD. Here's the radio station. Let's call them and send them. I mean, we, we mapped everything out like that because of this magazine. It saved our butts. Yeah. <laughs> and that in reviews, people are like, don't play this club. The, the owners are notorious for ripping off bands and, you know, stuff like that. And you know that just that was our bible on the road and that really helped it you know and slowly we started like i said we you know we'd go play a couple shows in arizona go back to la go play colorado go back to la and then slowly one weekend turned into two weekends so it was a process um you know we kind of had jobs too but slowly it just got to the point of if we're going to do this we need to do it now yeah quit our job and we're very lucky that our guitarist mark and our singer jim had jobs that they were doing uh, video editing. So they had jobs where they were making a decent amount of money. They knew we were eventually, so they saved that money and that bought us our first van for $300. That paid for our first <laughs> set of t-shirts we got. So we were in a different position than a lot of bands starting, um, but I think also it was just being smart and being realizing, okay, we need to do this smart. We don't want to be abandoned three months we're coming home because we can't afford gas in the van. You know, and I give a lot of credit to that to, to Jim and Mark for 
having that business hit. And sometimes, yeah, Jim and I would clash on because I was the heart guy and he was the head business guy. <laughs> but in the end, we understood each other. You know, he'd take a little of my heart aspect and I would learn a lot of his business aspect. And, yeah. You know, so we just became a well-oiled machine. Right on. So some push and pull there. Yeah, I mean, you have yeah. to. We, we were like brothers in the sense that we loved each other and also in the sense that sometimes we just wanted to punch each other in the face. <laughs> but that's anything. I mean, that's marriage, that's friendship, that's whatever. And we were stuck in a van, you know, sometimes 16-hour drives right after a show. You had to respect that person you were with or it just wasn't going to work out. And we lasted, you know, I was in that band from 1993 till 2007. And 95% of it was love and, and respect and getting along and, you know, and just having the same goal. That's the thing. We all had the same goal. We all wanted to be the biggest band in the world. And it didn't work out that way, but I look at it, we had a lot more success than most bands get to have. Yeah, right. We came out of it, no no drug thing, no rehabs, no, you know, I mean, you know, we had a little fun on the road, but I mean, no one was, you know, alcoholics. We didn't get in the trappings of that, you know, because we all knew at the end of the day, you know, yeah, go out and party and have a good time tonight, but we got to get up at 7 a.m., get in the van and drive, blah, 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 you know, and we all, I mean, every now and then someone slipped up, but for the most part, we were there to support each other. You know, you get drank a little much, I'll carry your amp tonight or, you know, stuff like that. So it was it, it was all, all for one. And another thing I tell young bands, if your heads aren't in the right place and you look at it's us against the world, you're not going to go anywhere. If it's you against your guitarist or your bass player against your drummer, good luck lasting six months. You know, but if it's all, hey, guys, no matter what issues we have, um, we need to be a machine and attack this head on. You know, and it really it really helped out. Another thing for any aspiring musicians or people in new bands or bands just getting ready to start touring out there listening to this uh, in podcast world, one thing that really helped us was we would have a band meeting once a week. And we would say, no matter what is said in this meeting, no one takes it personal. We're just getting our grievances out. And we would, you know, and Mark, last, you know, the show a couple nights ago, dude, you turned around, you gave me a look in one song, and that just pissed me off. And I wanted to throw a stick at you. But I just got it, and he'd be like, Oh, dude, I didn't even notice that. I'm sorry. I was just in a mood. Like, hug it out. Go get a beer. Next day, we were fine. There was no, like, you're just holding something something small that pissed you off, and three weeks later, someone drops a cymbal stand, and you're like, you jerk, and blow up. And that's how bands break up. And that thing helped us so much because, we, you know, nobody get mad. We're just clearing the air. And that that really helped us last as long as we did. Yeah. And we still had our fights, but... Never gotten into brawls. It was all just sometimes yelling like, dude, what the hell are you thinking with that? And we always came back to a common goal. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you're getting it out and, you know, you know, you're not saying anything about it. You're just getting it out and moving on. And, mm -hmm. and we were behind the music. All of us believed yeah. in the music. All of us believed, you know, we had a viable product to put out there. And we were, like I said, willing to work our butts off to get our music to the masses. That's awesome. We didn't even think about going to labels. We just thought we have to do the work, and then they'll come to us, and which is you know kind of what happened. A lot of band, even you know young students are like, "What do I need to do to get a drum endorsement?" And I'm like, "How about you learn that fill first, and then we can talk about you know like uh, what do you have to offer companies?" You know, it's like you're you're thinking the wrong thing about this. It should be I'm going to be the best drummer I can possibly be. And then I'm going to have to fight off companies that want, you know, yeah, I mean, but that shouldn't be your goal. It shouldn't be. Oh, rain it in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's, okay. He wants to play, you know, 
the fastest double bass speed. I'm like, let's start with ACDC. Let's, you know, stuff like that. But patience. Lots of patience. <laughs> well, one more thing on the Caroline Spine mm -hmm. thing. Uh, from a personal standpoint, I, I like the, well, I say the first album, the first major label album. Monsoon? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. But when Attention Please came out, I mean, I wore that thing out. Like that, from start to finish, yeah. is just like the perfect 90s rock album. Thank you. In my opinion. Thank you. That's yeah. a huge compliment. What, why, why that is a lot is Monsoon, <clears throat> most of the songs on Monsoon were on our indie CDs. So what we did is what the label said, obviously thinking, keep the cost down. He said, why don't we take your guys, the best of your indie stuff, remix it, maybe re-record a couple that the, the mix didn't come out very well, remix the stuff, and that's going to be your first CD. So... We were happy, but a lot of our hardcore longtime fans weren't happy because they're like, we know this stuff. Well, yeah, it sounds better, but we know this stuff. And we're like, well, yeah, but in the grand scheme of things, right now you guys are a s small minority compared to what we're trying to hit. Right. And to most of these new people, they've never heard of Caroline Spine. They weren't following us in the indie days. They know nothing about our four CDs out of San Diego we did. So this is all new to them. And most of our fans were like, we get that. We're, we're going to stay behind you. So that's what Monsoon was. Attention Please was we wrote the songs on the road. We, you know, we got a real producer, um, this guy Roy Thomas Baker, who did all the Queen records, all the Journey records, uh, worked with just everyone. I mean, tons of bands. So they brought him in. I mean, his fee alone was like 90 grand just for his producing Damn. fee. Um, did pre-production in LA where we worked through the songs. I mean, I remember we had this the song True Star. That's the last song on the album. Yeah. That song originally was like an eight minute long jam. <laughs> and I remember one day he goes, very English, he's like, okay, listen, you can have an eight minute song that only musicians are gonna like, or we can trim it down to a three and a half minute song that's gonna make you a million dollars. And we're like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> so it was actually just having somebody there to go, not commercialize us, but go, I want you guys to have a strong album that's concise, that people can listen to each song start to finish, and you don't have any of these long 12-minute jams that, again, only other musicians are going to dig or someone who likes Rush, you know. And so to have that outside to say to us, are you guys sure you want to repeat that part five times? How about twice? <laughs> you know, so that was a lot of work. on. And then we got flown out to his private studio in Lake Havasu, Arizona, and, like, as far as when I was a kid, got to live the dream. Work, you know, waking up every day, recording. One of the hardest things I ever had to do, because all my drumming for the first time was under a microscope. You know, if one hit was off, he's like, no, nope, do it again, do it again. I'm like, I can't do it again. You can do it again. Never had to deal with it before. It was, that was good enough, cool. <laughs> so one of the most stressful experiences in my life, but one of the most gratifying. And at the end, that made us even more proud of that record. Because here we have, you know, 95% all new songs that were recorded for this album producer it's we love the mix it sounded great um, Nick Didia uh, engineered it who did work with Stone Table Pilots and Pearl Jam and stuff like that and, um, so that is a big compliment that you say that because we put a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of time into that record Monsoon ended up selling more right because unfortunately our label our record label didn't know what to do with us good guys it was Hollywood Records um, but at the time, they were just starting to get into rock bands. They were the number one label for soundtracks 
Yeah. They said, let's try this. They had uh, Insane Clown Posse first, who oh, they man. hated dealing with, because I guess when they got signed, Insane Clown Posse went in the Hollywood Record offices and like sprayed all their foam all over the place. And, uh, yeah. and they're like, who did we just sign? Yeah. And then they had a mo- uh, actually a big hit with that band, Fastball. You remember? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was their big hit for Hollywood Records, their first rock hit. So they thought, oh, Caroline's fine. We, you yeah. know, they've done all the legwork for us. And I always tell people this, from the beginning of our career, it was an upward climb. It kept things get bigger, bigger, bigger. We got signed to a major label and it almost seems like things plateaued. Yeah. The growth stopped, you know? Um, and, I'm, and not to discredit them, a lot of guys sit there and go, our label sucked and they did this and they stole money from it. We didn't have that experience. We didn't lose money. We didn't owe them money. Just in the end, both parties realized, we don't know, we don't know what to do with you guys. You know, instead of a quarter page ad in Rolling Stone, they would give us a full page ad, full page ad in Metal Edge. I'm like, that's not our crowd. Right. That's you know, <laughs> thank you. That's great. To either eat Metal Edge. That's great, but <clears throat> that's not our. So they just didn't. And they at the end said, we don't, we don't know how to break. You know, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. We love you guys, but we don't, we don't have the right people in, in no. you know, in line for this. So it was an amicable split. Couldn't find another label and did our own thing again for a few years and then it just was time yeah. well <clears throat> attention please it had a you know it, it had like this uh, this urgency like a spark you know I, I remember I don't know why driving down Riverside and just <clears throat> ready set go you know I love that know, song <laughs> and uh, it's just that was a yeah you guys hit it out of the park you know, whatever anyone says. That was a Thank great you. album. Well, and a big thing of it, which I liked, is that between <clears throat> Monsoon and Attention Please, I was really getting our singer Jim into a lot more riff rock. Like, I love riff rock. Yeah. You know, I, I like chord rock, but I just like that riff to catch you. Mm-hmm. And just in the van, playing them all these bands, a lot of bands in the late 90s that really never went anywhere, but just were great bands, like... Um, a band called Big Wreck, a band called oh, Dovetail God. Joint, um, yeah. obviously Our Lady Peace, um, and Chevelle, you know, just, or oh, Chevelle was around back then, but just riff heavy bands. And the, one of the first things Drag. he did was, yeah, Clutch, was uh, our song Work Song. Yeah. He came out with that riff. Yeah. And I was like, dude, that's one of the coolest things. And that's one of those songs, as soon as he wrote the riff, we just all, pretty much what you hear in, on the record, is almost from first rehearsal of that song. It was something about that riff, and we all just came together, and that's what, it just flowed, it just sparked, it just, you know. That, that's the magic, you know. It just all, you probably didn't even need to practice it, it just. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was, you know, that, just so there's a lot of riff-heavy songs on that <laughs> album. And I'm not taking credit for writing any of it, but I'm taking credit for at least <laughs> trying to plant the seeds in our singer. You, you, you pushed, him, pushed him down the hall. Yes, and, it's, and, when, and our singer Jim was not a big fan of 80s rock. I mean, he liked it, but his brothers, he was the youngest of, I think, five brothers, was more into the poppy 80s. So when Scott Jones joined the band, here I had my friend who also loved the 80s rock so we would just crank that stuff in the van yeah. all the time and Jim's like what who's this bullet boys okay I kind of remember hey, this is a good <laughs> album and that helped too and that's why I think attention please was really a big collaboration of all of us yeah. all of us got something on there you know that's awesome and then that's I'm very I'm proud of everything we've done there's not one song I look back on and go Ugh. but that album in particular just Knowing what we went through to get that made, I'm just so proud of that. Still to this day. <laughs> right 
And when well, a student asks me to learn a Caroline Spine song, first I go, well, your parents like them, right? And you know, a young student like, no, I like you guys. And you know, one, th one joke is I have a student who wanted to learn our song, Jump Ship. And I said, I joked with him. I go, do you want to learn how I played it in 96, 98, or 2001? He's like, the hell does that mean? I go, it just changed from all the yeah. touring and things evolved. And so I had to relearn how we originally did it just so I could teach it to him. And that, you know, it was just how things evolve. Even Kiss said when they got Peter and Ace back in the band, songs had evolved and taken on a whole new life over the years with all the different members that they had to go back and listen to the original tracks and go, wow, we've sped that up over the years, or wow, we weren't even doing that one bridge anymore, or, you know, they had to go back and remember. Uh, you know, when they came back in, I'm sure it was a completely <clears throat> different. Uh, that had to just shake everything back up to what oh, they were yeah. used to. Oh, yeah. You know. Well, and especially... Ace and, and Peter weren't the seasoned musicians that yeah. had been in the band up till then. No. So the Kiss, you know, Paul and Gene had to take a little of a step back and, you know, and some says it was all for the better. Some say, for me as a Kiss fan and missing the makeup years, as far as seeing them live, my first time I saw them live was Lick It Up. So I oh, missed wow. the makeup years. Yeah. So not only the first show we did with them, here we are touring with them. They're back in makeups. The original guys... But the first show we played for him, we got dead center front row seats to watch the show. Wow. And I'm, I mean, again, kid on Christmas Day, like, oh, yeah. just mouth open the entire time. Yeah. Like, this is amazing. And we just played on that stage, you know. <laughs> yeah, this is weird, and I maybe I shouldn't say this, but I always kind of wanted to see him without the makeup. I, I saw them. That's, Have you seen Ace I, and Peter without makeup? Do you really? <laughs> no, I mean, like, Talking this is dumb. Cool. I wanted to oh, see, you I never saw see, those years? No, I wanted to see him with Kulik and Singer. Oh, yeah. You know, well, even, see, Eric Carr, the, the drummer after Peter Chris, yeah. was more of an influence. Peter Chris was an influence, I always say, in wanting me to play drums. Yeah, Eric yeah, Carr was, was the that, one that yeah. made me, like, well, I got to practice. Well, I, and no discredit to Peter, because especially on those first few records when he was hungry. <sighs> He did some really cool stuff, and then drugs, alcohol, whatever, he just got lazy with his drumming. Whatever happened, they had to do studio stuff to make it sound good. But when Eric Carr came in and just gave him a kick in the ass, and yeah. he had the giant drum set in the home, and that to me was more motivating than anything yeah. Peter ever did. Well, it's like you see what what the 80s became, and you kind of go like, God, you know, I don't know if they could have done that with Peter Chris. Oh, it's probably a good thing they did yeah, get Eric Carr. Yeah. And if they wouldn't have taken off the makeup, their years would have been. Yeah. I mean, they were pretty much numbered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had to do yeah. something drastic, and I think it was the smartest thing of their career. Yeah. And look at them now, still going. Yeah. And a lot of people bitch that Eric Singer and uh, Tommy Thayer are in Ace and Peter's makeup. Being the hardcore Kiss fan that I am, I look at it as the visual that you're seeing is Kiss. Yeah. And I would rather pay the amount of money that they charge for a show and get the best show possible than trying to watch Ace, Ace and Peter mumble their way through it and inconsistent every night. And So, I, yeah, I mean, it's sad it's not them, but they did it. They tried it. They gave them their chance. They blew it again. And, again, this is all just my opinion. I know other KISS fans out there have their things. We're very passionate people. But I think when you go to a show now, visually, you're seeing the four original. Even though it's not, but you're getting a tighter show than you ever would. My wife came with me on their Sonic Boom show. She'd never seen Kiss. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, she goes, you know I'm going to be cracking up tonight. And I go, why? And she goes, these old guys wearing makeup and spandex. I'm going to be laughing. Four songs into it, she turns around to me and she goes, they're really good. She goes, are those their vocals? And I go, yeah, they're not doing backing tracks. She goes, 
I'm very impressed with these old guys in spandex. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you should see what Ace and Peter are on there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, it's uh, the uh, it's like Sonic Boom or Monster. Mm-hmm. You know, people say whatever they want to say. I, I don't care. And you know, maybe maybe they should be in different makeup. I don't know. I don't know. But those records, I still think are good. I love them. Sonic I, Boom was the perfect comeback you, album. You they were talking done. earlier about riffs. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's riffs all over both those albums. Yes. And uh, I mean, I've played both those albums over and over. Oh yeah. And, Me too. You know, I might be in the minority on that one, but I don't care. I think Sonic. I put Sonic Boom as one of my favorite Kiss albums because. Really? I'm, I just like that it's a good rock and roll record. It reminds me of rock and roll over. Um, I like there's no ballads on it. I like nothing against ballads, but it, the, <laughs> the tones they got, the guitar tones sound straight out of the 70s. And the fact that they did that without completely ripping themselves off, but they, that album sounds like a 70s album with the modern technology. And I think the songs are really, really, I like Sonic Boom better than Monster. Um, I think Monster's good, but Sonic Boom start to finish, I think, is a strong kiss out. Now you have Psycho Circus that I was very excited about mm-hmm. until I heard that Peter only played on one song, yeah. Ace only played on a couple songs, even reading interviews with Paul Stanley now saying that album was a joke, yeah. that album made me think we will never do another album again. So that, I thought there were some good songs on it, A for effort, but then reading what really <laughs> went behind that is supposed yeah. to be their reunion album, like, come on guys, what did you, that was just a money making. Yeah. And Sonic Boom was like a Walmart exclusive. Yeah. And I remember, you know, before going to work, the day it came out, I went to Walmart at 6 a.m. and bought that damn yep. thing. Yeah. Listen to it on the way to work. Oh, yeah. Me too. You know, say what you want. That was one That's of the first happened. times in years that I got a record the day it came out, <laughs> unless I downloaded off iTunes or yeah. something, you know. Yeah, exactly. But I still, with that, I go, I got I to gotta own the CD. Even mm. though nowadays I buy a CD, I put it in iTunes, I don't look at the cover anymore. I'm like, I ha- still have my KISS CD collection. I have <laughs> to have it in there, you know? <laughs> yep, exactly. Except what? Peter's solo album. <laughs> <laughs> did they, uh, when you guys toured with them, did they interact that all, that much with you guys? Yes. Just... <clears throat> funny, okay, funny story. Um, before we did the KISS tour, when Caroline Spine was before we were signed, before we had Doc McGee or whatever, we were playing, going to play a show at the Whiskey in L.A., which growing up in L.A. and, you know, yeah. was too young to go to any of those places, but just driving with my parents Sunset Boulevard and seeing in the 80s the lines up and down. I was like, I'm going to do that one day. And my dad's like, oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> um, we had a show at the Whiskey. My dad knew Paul Stanley's wife at the time through mutual friends, not like good friends with her. So without me knowing, my dad calls Paul Stanley and says, I know you get this all the time. My son is a huge Kiss fan. His band's playing the whiskey. If you've got a night off, it would be great. And again, this is before they put the makeup back on, before the reunion tour. So he's like, I'm just going to throw that out there. Do with it what you will. So we show up at the whiskey. I'm excited anyways. I'm in the friggin' whiskey. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and I'm upstairs high-fiving my friends. I'm like, yeah, I'm so cool. This is awesome. Look at me and the whiskey. And my dad goes, hey, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. He brings me over, and there's Paul Stanley. Oh, my God. And he's like, hey, Jason, nice to meet you. Your dad's told me a lot of great things about you. I'm like, yeah, I've heard a lot of great things about you, too. And I'm just like, you know, and then here comes Scott Jones, our bass player. I'm like, Scott, I'd like you to meet a new friend of mine. His mouth just drees like, you're Paul Stanley. And, you know, so we play the show. We had a really good show. And at the Whiskey, you've got it. When you get done, you haul everything out on the Sunset Boulevard and pack up there. 
So I'm packing up and talking to my friends. My friend's like, dude, Paul Stanley was there. I'm like, I know. <laughs> so here comes Paul, wow. puts his hand on my shoulder. He goes, Jason, I really like the band. I really liked your drumming. Um, I'll call you one day. And I'm like, yeah, you do that, Mr. Stanley. Sure, thinking, I'll never see that guy again, but that was awesome. Yeah. Three weeks later, he calls me. And this is when we had answering machines. I was screening my calls, and I hear, hey, Jason, this is Paul Stanley from KISS, like, as opposed to the other Paul Stanley that I hang out, you know, and I <laughs> jump over the bed, I grab the phone, I'm like, Mr. Stanley! And he's like, hey, I just want to call and tell you, I was really impressed with your drumming, I was really impressed with the band. Um, he's like, you know, uh, maybe I'll call you one day to do some demo work. And again, I'm like, yeah, you do that, please, sure, that'd be great. And I said, now, if you remember, when they did the reunion tour, that's when they kind of started being a little more honest about things in their past, like who really played on record. Before that, it was a really well-kept secret. So I had him on the phone. I go, Mr. Stanley, can I ask you some questions? And he goes, sure, go ahead. I go, was it really Anton Fig that played on Dynasty and on Mass? And he goes, yes, it was. And I was asking him all this KISS trivia, and he was totally open about it. He goes, you've done your homework. And I go, I love you guys. <laughs> so that was that. Two year, No, about a year and a half later, we get Doc McGee as a manager. We get asked to do the KISS tour. So we're at the first show in Phoenix. We're backstage. Paul Stanley's coming from his limo into the dressing room, sees me. Now, this is a year and a half. So sees me and goes, hey, Jason. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> then from the – so they're playing. We're dead center front row. He's crossing the stage like he does. Looks at me and goes, hey, Jason. My buddies are like, did Paul Stanley just say hello? I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, again, like I'm four years old. So he – and then after the show was the nicest guy. Wow. And the fact that my idol turned out to be so down to earth. And apparently – and Gene Simmons was really nice. We met him very business, very – but was a nice guy. Peter was really nice to me. He came up to me, gave me a drum head. He goes, hey, I've been listening to your CD in the, on the bus, and I really, really like it. I'm like, dude, you're Peter Chris. I play because of you. Yeah. He's like, oh, thanks, man. Ace was a little vacant. Um, but apparently, the, the funny thing is, years later, I found this out. When they were doing the Psycho Circus album, mm -hmm. Paul called our management to see if I was available to do demos for the record. Wow. wow. But at that time, we were just getting a release monsoon. We had a tour booked. They didn't tell me because they were afraid I would quit Caroline Spine to do that. Oh, man. So years later, I'm talking with our sound guy, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's like the time uh, Kiss asked you to do demos. And I go, what? He goes, oh, yeah, we never told you. Never told me what? So he tells me this story, and he goes, would you have left Caroline Spine? I go, you know, I don't know, but it would have been nice to have had that, <laughs> you know. The option. Yeah, so like years later, I'm in L.A., and I see Paul Stanley in the mall with his family. And I go up and I go, excuse me, Mr. Stanley, I don't know if you're... He goes, Jason, how you doing, man? What's going on? And I wanted to say, hey, um, I don't know if you were ever told this, but if you need any more demo... I mean, I didn't. I was just yeah. like, you know, thank you for remembering me. And, I, and he's like, how's your dad? How's the band doing? But was just so down to earth, the nicest guy. Wow. And that, you know, and that's my kiss story. I have, it's probably not even the same number, but in my phone I have Paul Stanley's number that I've always been too afraid to call. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's probably changed 15 times over. But I'm like, look, I got Paul Stanley's number. Like, why don't you call him? No, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> don't delete it. Yeah, no, I'm, that's, stay, yeah, that's <laughs> staying in there. But again, just a great story of your, your idols turning out to be nice people, down-to-earth people. Mm -hmm. Didn't give me the rock star treatment. Didn't snub me. Didn't look at us like, oh, you're just the opening band. Mm -hmm. And one of the, I think it was the second or third, we're playing our set. And we look over, and there's uh, Ace and Paul watching us from side stage. And we all, you know, we're like, <gasps> lost where we were in the song. And, yeah. you know, but... 
just amazing experience. Yeah. Amazing experience. That's awesome. And Which taught us a lot. Good, because you always, you know, you hear that saying, you don't want to meet your heroes, because well, it'll, it'll disappoint it, you or whatever. Yeah. You know? It's like, yeah. I can't even remember where I heard it recently, but there's a Slayer would have, uh, for their opening bands, they would make their passes, and their passes would say, I'm nothing, I'm a piece of shit or whatever, you know? Like, well, that's totally Slayer, you know? Yeah. But, so that's good to, that's good to hear. That. Oh, yeah, but every, I mean, Queensryche, <laughs> nicest guys. Yeah. Uh, one of our favorite Queensryche songs was a song called Take Hold of the Flame. Yeah. And they didn't play it at all on that tour. And we're like, play take, you know, every sound check, like, take all the flames. So our last show with them at Soundcheck, we hear Jeff Taco, is our opening band, Caroline Spine, in the house? And we're in the gym. We're like, what? And we come out. He goes, this one's for you guys. And they did half of Take Hold of the Flame just at sound check. He awesome. goes, we're not putting it to the show tonight, but we just wanted to play it. And they were like, thank you so much. Sebastian Bach, <laughs> we toured with him. Nice guy. You know, I've heard behind the scenes he can be a little bit to us. He was extremely yeah. nice. So, we never had bad experiences like that. Everyone we played with, because we were nice guys. Yeah. We didn't treat opening bands like beneath us, and yeah. we didn't treat anyone like beneath us. Yeah. So once they realized we were nice guys, everyone was cool with us. You know, we were just happy to be where we were. Yeah. We didn't no, walk definitely. into a club like we own this club. It's thank you for letting us play tonight. You know, <laughs> can we sweep at the end of the night? Can we do anything? You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've done that before. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said that ninety-five uh, percent of the time everything was great. So the thing I've wondered is in uh, 2008, whenever Jim started it again yeah. with all new people, Yes. like was that a, just his decision or was that something that you, the rest of you guys yeah, the, moved on to other stuff? The, or? the end for me, Mark, and Scott was, yeah, in 2007, I'll never forget, our last show together was Eskimo Joe's, and it was literally at the end of the night hugging each other, going, all right, see, it. we were going to take a couple months off, um, and... Within that time, things changed. Um, the focus of where the future of the band was became dissipated amongst all of us. Um, and to be honest, it was a lot of it was we felt it was the three of us against Jim. Not against. I mean, he wasn't doing anything. It was just a vibe we were getting. And we all kind of sat down and said, you know what? We've had a great run. Again, we've gotten to do things that musicians who could play circles around us only dream about uh, got to open up for our idols we got to do all this we've done the label thing where is the band going and I think the three of us were kind of like we've had our fun we don't really see this other than just being hey let's get together to make some money and I was kind of I was teaching the lessons and everything and we were just kind of getting a new phases of our life and we didn't know he was going to continue with the name like I still respect Jim as a songwriter and a singer um, and the fact that he, I, it would have been stupid for him not to continue in some capacity. The guy was too talented. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it stung a little when he carried into the name. But then, you know, you think about it. I mean, most bands that are still around that were around a long time ago, especially the 80s bands that are around, it's usually one original member left. Yeah. And we know there's a lot of fans that don't go anymore because it's not the four of us. There's fans that still go, they know it's not the four of us, but they miss the songs. And hey, more power to you. I miss the songs too. And there's some people that they never knew who was on stage and could care less who's on stage. They just like the songs. Right. So in one respect, I'm glad the songs are living on. You know, I mean, it, it stings a little, but not to any point that we would ever stop him from doing that or, you know, or anything. I mean, he created the name. He was the first guy there. He wrote 99% of the riffs. You know, stuff like that. So, 
But Scott and I started a band called New Science, an original band that we did with a couple guys locally. And so we've all stayed busy. We've, we haven't had time to sit around and go, oh, what, what <laughs> if things could have worked out? Or what if it just, it, I think everything happened for a reason. And I think everything happened in the right way. Right. So I'm, all three of us are happy where we are. Um, and again, great memory. And it brought me to Tulsa. I mean, I'm so happy living here. Everyone, you know, you're from LA. Why do you live here? <laughs> and I just feel comfortable here. I made great friends. Um, if it wasn't for Caroline Spine, I never would have found all these amazing cities in the country yeah. that without a band, I never would have come to Tulsa. You know, no offense, yeah. but it probably would have been a big vacation spot for us, you know, <laughs> or Park City, Utah, or Grand Rapids, Michigan. You know, but we met great people, and I still, thank God for Facebook, I still have great friendships with a lot of our fans because mm -hmm. we're a very personal band, and especially me. I was, all before the show, after the show, I'm always out there yeah. saying, hey, thank you for coming to the show. Thank you, you know, people inviting us to their house for dinner. I'm still, we're still friends with those people. They're kind of like family we don't get to see anymore. Because yeah. a lot of them, we saw them every six weeks. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, Spine's coming back, party. <laughs> so I do miss that. But again, it gave me the opportunity to get to see this country, get to see the world. We got to go to Germany a few times. We got to go sh shoot out to the middle Atlantic Ocean and play on the USS Enterprise. So amazing things, no regrets. I guess I just wish it could have ended a little more cohesively. Right. But hey, you know, I'll take 95% of great yeah, years than, than most bands look back I was in that band for 20 years and I hated every minute of it I don't have that I don't ha I loved my years with Spawn yeah. and still I still put on the tunes I'm not sick of them um, I still put them on for students who want to learn songs or just every now and then I'll put a song on that we never played live that I miss and go man we had some good stuff yeah. and I'm still I'm proud of it so proud of it man. well do you have do you ever get any students to come in just because of that reason or because yes. they like Caroline Spine have you had that Yes, I'll have either some guys will come in and go, I heard you have the drummer for Caroline Spine. And some guys are like, why does he live here? I didn't even know he lived here. I've been living here since 2000 now. Uh, and then some people will come in, they'll talk to our owner, Matt, about what they're wanting to do with drumming. Like, oh, I like rock, I like 90s music. And Matt will go, you ever hear the band Caroline Spine? And some people say, yeah. And some people go, kind of, you know. And say, well, their drummer is a teacher here. And they'll be like, okay, I want to learn from that guy. So it's definitely helped get my foot in the door in a lot of places. It's definitely helped keep my name relevant, you know, in this town. Um, and staying busy as a drummer and a teacher, that's helped too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely helped. You know, in L.A., if I would have moved back to L.A., it would have been, I was a drummer in another band of millions of bands that just didn't make it huge. And I would have been lost in the sea of drummers. So at least when I moved here, again, because of my, I didn't move here because of this. I moved here because of the friendships I made. But... You know, the edge still plays us. KMOD still plays us on the air. And that helps keep our names relevant. If I want to start a new project, it's, oh, I've heard Jason's name before. And, the, you know, it's a, that's, a, that's an awesome thing. How many guys who are in a band for that long who are not in the band anymore can still say that? So uh, just another thing I knock on wood for every day that I'm lucky enough to be in that position. And I don't take it for granted. You know, I know that it, that does not come very easily for a lot of musicians. So. Yeah. Just if anyone has heard, you know, I still act surprised. Someone's like, I've heard of Caroline Spine. I'm like, really? Thank you. <laughs> and some people are like, yeah, what do you, you know, you, you hear a band on the radio, you think they're huge. So I've heard people go, I thought you guys were as big as Pearl Jam. And we're like, maybe here, but if you go to <laughs> some town in Montana, they'd be like, Caroline's who? 
you know, so it's depending on where we got radio play, we were bigger than other places. Yeah. But, you know, that's still a good thing that I walk into work every day, not every day, but a lot of days, and here's Sullivan. Yeah. And I still stop and big smile on my face. I'm like, hey, that's me. Those are my, my brothers on the radio. <laughs> so it's, it's awesome. <laughs> Years. <laughs> it's like, oh crap! It's I, say, I always have to joke. I have a bladder of a four-year-old girl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are we back on though? Yeah. Well, because I was uh, one thing. I you know I, I'm I'm glad you're so forthcoming about that because I was like I don't know if we should, you know just oh. want to talk a lot about that stuff and I you know I always say to people I'm pretty much unless you have negative stuff about my family or you're going to come at me like that <laughs> I'm an, I'm an open book because again I'm so appreciative and so thankful for mm-hmm. all that that if anything I went through could help someone yeah. how to do it or how not to do it you know because mm-hmm. we made a lot of mistakes you know it was a big learning curve for us since we didn't have someone a manager or anything like that we had to figure it out on our own yeah. so if even this talking about this can help a, a band or you know mm-hmm. um, it's you know just you know any young bands out there just rehearse 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 get as tight as you can play and one thing about Oklahoma is that we're right in the middle of the country so People get scared when they hear touring. They think, oh, i got to go buy a van and go leave my family. No, go to, go to Dallas. Go to yeah. Oklahoma City. Go to uh, Fort Smith. Go to Kansas City. You have so many places around where you can just do little weekend things and build up a crowd like Spine did. You know, go hit, start with, just to throw names out, start with Dallas and Kansas City. Yeah. Hit each town every six weeks. Build a crowd. Once you see the crowd building, add one more city to that. Start that okay, add more so you don't have to just drop everything and go on tour and sell your soul, you know. And, and again, in, in LA, they're in LA, you're either swallowed up or you had to. And we were getting a lot of play and a lot of notice in LA, so that's like, all right, we're they're gonna die here, or we need to get on the road and spread this music. Yeah. Um, and it was a little harder in LA because you drove six hours to Phoenix because anywhere close to LA, there anywhere in in California was such competition. So go down to San Diego. There's a million bands there. Go up to San Francisco. Million bands there. So we would find smaller cities that you know Flagstaff, Arizona, where we got big crowds because people are like, "Thank you." Not enough bands come through here. We keep having to drive to Phoenix. Well, we play Flagstaff every month. Yeah. You know, and but then around Flagstaff, people would take notice, and they college radio would start playing us, and that built it up. Then we could spread into Phoenix. Then, you know, so yeah. go where no one goes. <laughs> Because people will appreciate that more, you know. Well, you said, uh, you mentioned New Science a little while ago. Mm-hmm. You and Scott, you started that, well, like 2001 or two, right? Was Around that, there, yeah. So was that during a break on? That was during or? a break. Uh, the idea behind that was, you know, Scott's my wingman, you know, and Spine just wasn't playing a whole lot. We kind of had gotten to the point where we were kind of weekend warriors, so we weren't touring, touring, touring. Um, and there was a band at the time, a local band called Madverb, who, oh, yeah. Yeah. St- I mean, Ben Hosterman, the guitarist for Madverb, mm-hmm. uh, is in the two bands that I, I play in, Dead Metal Society and Amp. And I was a huge fan of, of that band. All our friends were, my wife was, loved all the guys in the band. They wrote great songs. And they did it smart. They started as a cover band that had a couple originals. And they played so much, they got to the point where they were an original band with a couple covers thrown in. Yeah. Yep. And... Love the guys in the band, and uh, they had a guy in the band, Mike Jameson, who was their rhythm guitarist, who sang a couple songs. And I remember their singer, Jeff Martinson, I was a big fan of his and Mike's, but two completely different singers. And I said to myself, that guy Mike needs to have his own band. I would love to be in a band with him singing. I just loved his voice and loved his writing. 
We never could get it together. He had a little band called Flapjack Cancer Company for a little <laughs> while. And then the time was, uh, said, hey, let's start a band with Mike and Ben from Madverb, me and Scott from Spine. And we figured, it's like a super group. We're going to pack out everywhere we play. And that didn't happen. And that's when I realized, <laughs> well, unless you're like on the radio, and I thought it was just so easy for Spine. Again, being from LA, I didn't know what a cover band was. A cover band was these old guys who would play a jazz club. Yeah. And then I come here and there's all these cover bands. And I'm like, and, and in the beginning, I always thought being in a cover band was giving up. It's like, oh, I'll just do this, this is easy. What I've realized down the road is not everybody wants to be an original band. Not everyone has these dreams of being signed and being a rock star. Some people, they just want to play their instrument, have fun, maybe make a little money, play music they love to play. And that gave me the appreciation of, okay, being in a cover band is not what I thought it was. you know. Um, so that's when I realized, though, most people in this town at that time were supporting cover bands, not original music. So we play... Not a lot of people were coming out to it, and we got you know we got a little burnt out. We got to record our CD at Kane's Ballroom when they were going through that renovation. Yeah, Mikey J, Mike Jameson was working there at the time, so we set up on the Kane stage, set the sound equipment in the old bathroom, oh, wow. and that's our EP was recorded at Kane's. Yeah, um, and we and still to this day I listen to that and I still love it, but it didn't go how we thought it. Not that we, were, we weren't trying to be the next big signed band. We weren't had any plans of touring. We just wanted to play around locally and do an original thing and have fun with it, and. It just got to the point everyone got busy, and so now New Science, we've never broken up. We'll play when something happens. So like a few months ago, we played for our first time in a year. We had a, a birthday party for Hondo from oh, the yeah. age she passed away. We played that, and we have a ball playing with each other. But everyone's busy, and when a circumstance comes about, hey, let's put New Science back together and relearn stuff and have a show and have fun. So that's what it is now. Yeah. But originally it was... You know, it was more riff heavy and it was a little, had a little more edge to it than Spine did. I got to just let loose on the drums a little bit more and it was kind of like, it was our band. Everybody, all the drum parts were what I came up with. All the guitar parts were, it was our thing. And it just didn't flow into what we thought it was and it, and then we just got busy. Yeah. But yeah, we'll never say New Science is broken up. So you never know <laughs> when New Science is going to play again. <laughs> but to anyone listening, if you go to our Facebook page, you can download our EP for free. So, Hell yeah. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little while ago, you mentioned kids practice, practice, practice. And when we uh, did our podcast with Nine, he mentioned that, I don't know, were you in Dead Metal Society from the beginning? No. Okay, because he mentioned that, that they played together for like, a, was it a year or two yeah. years? Yeah. Before the, they ever played their first show? Yeah. Which, and everybody in that band, you know, has been around. Seasoned, and, and yeah. Seasoned players. Yeah. So, I thought that was pretty impressive, you know. To, well, to put that effort into it and to make from what our singer Todd told me, the original idea of the band was, let's do '80s stuff that wasn't the popular stuff. Yeah. Let's do the B sides from Dawkins. Let's do Crocus. Let's do all and play Wednesday night at the Elephant Run and just have fun. No one knew it was going to become what it has eventually become. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget when I heard there was a band in town called Dead Metal Society doing '80s stuff which I always said if I'm ever going to be in a cover band it's going to be in a band that does either 80s rock or 90s rock <laughs> and I heard that that band had started and then I heard Ben my best friends was in the band and I was pissed I'm like how did I not get that call <laughs> and it turns out I didn't know anyone else in the band now Mark Mortensen our guitarist he used to be in an original band called Sybil's Machine that oh, had yeah. played with Spine so I knew Mark hadn't seen him in years but I knew Mark so I was like okay well whatever we'll see what happens with this band and then I saw pictures of them, and I thought it was really cool. They didn't do the wigs or anything, but they did, um, like, 
Dickie's work shirts, black shirts that had the name on them. So everyone in the band looked uniform, but it was still jeans and shirts and stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I like that. And for whatever reason, their original drummer didn't have time for the band or, or whatever happened. Great drummer. Um, ben suggested me. And he said that our singer, Todd, was like, well, I heard this guy's kind of young. Does he know any of this stuff? And Ben just laughed. Ben's like, I'm younger than him. He knows this stuff. So again, kind of brought back memories of Caroline Spine. Ben called me and said, hey, learn these songs. We're going to come to Drum World and audition you. Our singer's a little, he's never met you. He's a little weary about you just because he doesn't know you. And again, I learned these songs backwards. I mean, it didn't take long because I pretty much knew them already. But a lot of things like, well, I haven't sat and played these songs in years. So they came here and I nailed that audition. Again, just because I wanted it so bad. I go, I deserve to be in this band. Not because I'm better than anyone, just my where my mindset is, I will give you a thousand percent in this band because I know I'm going to have a ball. And then to hear Todd sing, I go, wow. I mean, he's the best singer I've ever had the pleasure to, to be in a band with. Wow. And the tightness of the band and the fact that they did, even though they'd already played a few shows, we rehearsed and we rehearsed and we got everything tight. And we got the background vocals and we got all that down. Um, and I just had a ball playing. And then one time for Halloween at CJ Maloney's, I said, we're in 80s, why don't we for Halloween dress, do the wigs and do the makeup and do the whole thing? And one's like, yeah, let's try that. And we had such a great time with it. And the reaction was so awesome that after the show, we looked at each other and said, all right, no more work shirts. This is what we're doing every show. And it evolved. We all got nicer wigs. We all looked at nine. <laughs> He's the only one without a wig. Right. But we just, we, we took it ser very seriously. We take it very seriously while still having a lot of fun with it you know we don't go out there thinking we're better than any other 80s band out there if someone thinks we are it's because we don't approach it like a party band we approach it like we want to give you these songs as you remember hearing them and we're going to learn them exactly how these bands did them and we're going to throw in some stuff that you probably don't remember from the 80s or you'll hear and go wow i totally forgot that song i love that song you know and it just it kept evolving, and I, I'm having so much fun. I love all these guys in the band. I have so much respect for them. And then Amped, I was like, well, I, I also want to do this 90s thing. So all of us in Dead Metal Society with a different singer formed Amped to just to do 90s grunge. And today we do Shinedown and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then Mark eventually left Amped because his, his heart was more with DMS than Amped. Um, and we got Wes Hoffman on vocals, who's a great singer. But so I, I get so I'm playing in two cover bands. Both bands are doing my favorite type of music that I could possibly want. So every night, and granted, it's nice that each band only plays once or twice a month. That way we don't get burnt out. We don't burn out our crowd. We look forward to every show, every DMS show, and every Amp show. None of us look at the calendar and go, Ugh, "I got to play again tonight." It's yes, you know, three days before. It's like we got a show coming up, and that keeps it fun. That keeps it fresh. That keeps it where even in the third set, we're still having fun. It's not, "I got to do this for the next five nights," you know, and that that helps. So I'm just having a ball. And I, the joke I tell everybody is, the 80s music made me want to be a drummer. 90s music made me realize I really have to practice. <laughs> I, it's not about twirling and you know, lighting stuff on fire anymore. It's, wow, I really got to practice this stuff. And, you know, and that's you know, the drummers of the 90s, the Jimmy Chamberlain from Smashing Pumpkins and Matt Cameron from Soundgarden are the guys that really took my drumming to another level yeah. you know, and just added a whole dimension to my playing. So I'm just very happy that I get to get my rocks out on both <laughs> these bands. Both oh, yeah. Love it. And that people dig it, too. Yeah. Great. Well, what are, like, uh, you know, you said earlier some of the songs that maybe people don't rem don't know or don't remember. What are your favorite, like, obscure ones to play? 
We'll do like Alone Again from Dawkin, uh, Screaming in the Night by Crocus. Uh, yeah. um, we just learned Calling Dr. Love. Like, we'll throw in some 70s kiss in there. Um, I mean, so much. We have, you know, like a big thing that people don't expect us to do that I think we, we nail. And with not being pompous, just saying we worked our butts off is when we do November Rain. You yeah. know, full on, start to finish with the piano and the whole thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but as far as off tracks, I'm just trying to think of everything. We'll do It's So Easy by Guns N' Roses. Nine will sing that. Or yeah. uh, we've got a lot of just. You know, you know, you get to the some place where you know you get a lot of the same people, and we'll let's change it up for them. Let's do, you know, we'll keep all our set lists. Mark, who makes our set list, will look and go. Well, we played this last time. Let's switch it out. And I like that. And we try to. I know a lot of cover bands in town where they've been playing for four years and not once added a new song mm-hmm. or even changed the order of their set yeah. list. Every DMS and Amp show, there's at least one new song that we learned for the show. And we change the order completely, not just yeah. like, let's do the third set. For, we'll change the order completely to keep it fresh for us and not make anyone in the crowd go, I saw the same exact show. You know, now granted, they're seeing it once a month. They're not going to remember it like we are. <laughs> but still, for us, if that's what keeps it fun for us. It's not, eh, we're going to start with this and this is third and this is eighth and this is, you know. I, I love when bands change up their set lists all the time. I hate it when... You know, they're the same the whole tour. Yeah, and that was a problem towards the end with Spine. Um, I was I won I was the one who physically wrote the set list every night, and I was always trying to get our singer. You know, we haven't done this one in a while. And his thinking, which I understood it, he looked at it as a as a kiss thing. Why people are like, why why kiss every night on the tour? You pretty much do the same set list. And they said because you have a show and you get into a groove where you know this song runs this long it runs great into this song and the crowd loves this song and we've got this and you just have it down to a science mm-hmm. and he liked that that in the end when spine wasn't doing three hours anymore we were doing a solid yeah. two hours we had a flow to our set my problem especially towards the latter days was a lot of the same people coming to the show a lot of our regulars and hardcore fans so i was like let's give them something different Let's give them that song we haven't done in six years because you know they're going to appreciate that, and that wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And that was really frustrating me of like, you know, a few years ago, I get that. We were a well-oiled machine. We need to come out tight every single night. Now we're pretty much playing for the hard, the diehards. Yeah. Let's just give them what they want. Why don't we a couple times go, yeah. what do you guys want to hear? All right, we're going to try and remember that one. That's how I was feeling it. Like Pearl Jam. Every night, and I give them so much credit for this. They play arenas, and every night, like I guess half hour before the show, Eddie sits there and writes set list. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's in, insane how much it's different. And you know, they do two hours. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's remarkable to me. So that's why I said, you know, and it wasn't just me telling DMS or Amplis to. It was all of us on the same page, mm-hmm. wanting yeah. to do that. Yeah. Side note: I saw Emerson Hart at the, you know, from Tonic. Yes. He played uh, the Vanguard a few months ago, and he. Uh, he just sat down and he, he, I can't remember what the first song it was he played. And then he said, All right, I'm going to play for a little over an hour. What do you want to hear? And he literally, the whole rest of the set list was what people yelled at. He wrote them down. Wow. Made the set list <laughs> on the spot. And See, and that's one it. of those shows you remember. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, like every now, I'm not saying Spine never did that. Like one time the crowd was a little, little dead one night and we played a solid hour of rock and we said, you know what, people? Just because we know most of you here tonight, we're going to break it down. We're going to do a little acoustic set for you. Yeah. Not because we were lazy or tired, but we're like, let's break out some songs acoustically. And I mean, I still get people on Facebook, dude, I remember in 98 in Wisconsin, I went to a show and you guys did, it was the coolest thing I ever saw. I was like, okay, that worked. That was yeah. awesome. But I was like, can we do more of that? <laughs> It was mainly just not getting bored playing every night. Yeah. You know, now I'm someone that if I'm playing drums, I'm happy. 
But even when you've just had a 15-hour drive and you've got five shows in a row and, you know, anywhere from five to a 15-hour drive between each one. And, again, we were driving ourselves all taking turns. Wow. That, you know, but you live by that rule. And I once heard someone say this, and it was so true. You can play six nights in a row, but the people who paid money on that sixth night, mm -hmm. they don't care. They want uh, the same show that people six nights ago got because they paid the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that was hard. But once we got that in their heads of like, hey, that guy right there, he just paid the same money they did on Saturday night. He wants the same show. Yeah. Let's give him the same energy. And 99% of the time, we delivered. Yeah. Every now and then, we were a little tired, and we had people go, we tell you guys we're a little tired tonight. Or like, <laughs> you try. And they'd be like, we don't, we don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it was yeah. hard, but, you know. Because uh, it's, it's every night for you, and for them, it's like, well, this is my one night. Yeah. You know, to, yeah. to see this band that I love. And you sometimes you'll go to a show and you'll see one, a band like that, and they year. look bored on stage. Ugh, you can tell. We just got out of the bus. And, was, and I'm thinking, you have a tour bus. You're not even driving. What are you complaining <laughs> about? We had to drive. Everyone took a four-hour shift. So you could have just played a three-hour show, and you're driving at three in, in three in the morning, just smacking yourself in the face trying to, you know, the fact that we never had any major accidents is amazing. <laughs> is amazing. Wow. That's nuts. And you hoped you weren't second guy driving. Because first guy driving, you're still going off adrenaline. Mm -hmm. right. Second guy, if you don't fall asleep right when you get in the van, you are hosed. <laughs> so, like, we pull straws. I'm like, not it. Not second guy. You know. You know? <laughs> but, man, I'll tell you, Tylenol PM was a good friend on the road. You know. You it was just knockout. <laughs> Wake me when it's my turn. <laughs> Do you have any crazy road stories, like, that jump out? Not a lot of them involving me, because I was I was the one that was always like you know and again I'm not going to say I was an angel on the road or I was a saint or anything like that but I was the one that was like you know again like I said before we've got to do this again the next five nights we've got so I'll go have a beer but I'm not going to have twelve you know so a lot of the stories were the other guys um, <laughs> things like when we were recording attention please Scott was having fun one night and was walking out on a carport and fell through it and fell right on a car or uh, I'll never forget one night in Salt Lake City Mark's playing and Mark used to with his wireless guitar was known for just walking around the bar getting up on the bar getting up on railings I mean I'd be on stage and see him at the other I'm like hey Mark and so one time he's playing and the whole time he had his foot on the beer tap and the thing's just and the bartenders rocking out had no idea just rocking out to mark and looks down and there's just beer everywhere or you know one time mark's crawling along and holding this pipe as he's getting and i just see his face go oh, and he's broke this pipe as he and he just kept walking and kept, so like little things like that that you just remember you know near-death experiences on the road of in the van and driving that colorado pass in the middle of winter oh, no. and a semi blows by so a lot of little things Nothing, you know, nothing again, nothing worthy of a behind the music. Right. In our minds, yes, because they're all great memories. They're all great stories, but nothing that, no, like, you know, Motley Crue. We got off the bus and we snorted a line of ants with Ozzy. You know, no, we weren't those guys, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I looked up a puddle of piss right under Ozzy. Yeah. Throw up. Yeah, we, and again, times those were, were different. And a lot of bands in the 90s were trying to get away from the than the 80s thing. Yeah. About it all just being party, party, party. Bands took it more seriously and stuff. So, you know, we always made it to the next show. You know, one one funny story in Vegas, we... And for some reason, this always involves Scott. And Scott's one of the nicest guys and great musician. But he liked to have fun after the show. 
So I'll never forget one time in Vegas, we had a 7 a.m. van call. I, most of us go to sleep. I wake up, hit the elevator at 7 a.m., and here's Scott coming back <laughs> from the casino. He's like, what are you guys doing up? We're like, dude, we've got a 10-hour drive right now. And I'll never forget, you know, August in Vegas, 110 degrees outside. Scott just sweating whatever he drank the night before, curled <laughs> up in the back of the van. And we, but things like that we laughed about because no one got hurt. No yeah. one, you know, at the time we were a little pissed. Yeah. But that night he put on a great show. It was always, we always rose to the occasion no matter what. And we always tried our best to give everyone 100% every night. That's awesome. Even even now with, with <laughs> DMS, with New Science, with Amped, with whoever. You know, I always say to people, if you hire me for your band, I'm not, again, I'm not going to be a pompous person and say, I'm going to be the best drummer you've ever had. But you can guarantee that I'm going to put 110% into it. I'm going to learn the songs you mm -hmm. want me to learn. I want, because... I have more fun that way too. I don't want to be sitting up there guessing. Oh, maybe I should have learned that song a little more. I like to, I like to know my stuff, have it down. That way, if things change, you can always come back to how it was supposed to be. Yeah. Instead of things changing and you don't know where the original form was, you're opposed. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just it's a, if you're not having fun, don't do it. If it's just about the paycheck, don't do it. Yeah. You know. Well, like who are who are some of your favorite drummers now? Other than Peter Chris, right. Well, growing up, I would say huge influences. Eric Carr, Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden, still a big influence on me. Uh, Tommy Lee, not now because I hate the solos he's doing. With, I mean, he's not even really doing a solo. But back in the day, not just visually, but I loved his attitude. I loved how he played. I loved uh, mm -hmm. most of the 80s drummers were big influences on me. Then in the 90s, like I said, uh, Jimmy Chamberlain, huge influence. Um, Danny Carey. Um, and a lot of it was like I didn't I not I don't play like Danny Carey, but I'll just pick little things out that I can I can adapt to that I can throw that in my drumming because I've never been in a band that needed to have that kind mm -hmm. of drumming but I respect him and I love tools so I'll pick and pull little things that I like Neil Peart obviously don't claim yeah. to be able to play like him probably <laughs> couldn't sit down and play Tom Sawyer start to finish as much as I love and know the whole Rush catalog but huge respect for him and one of my favorite drummers um, today. Gosh, uh, when you mean today, like how new are we talking? I love Gavin Harrison from Porcupine Tree, who's a new band I just kind of got into. Um, uh, obviously, Mike Portnoy. I love uh, the drummer whose name's escaping right me right now from System of a Down and Deftones. Those guys. Yeah. Um, just so many. I mean, just unfortunately now, you know, again, when we were kids, we would find out, or at least I did, find out everything I could about a band, and we had to go buy magazines and do it. Now. You know, some of my students are like, oh, I love that band. I love the drummer. What's his name? I don't know. Right. You know, you just one click on Wikipedia or their website or you can find that information yeah. out. But, you know, know the people of the bands you're in. But I still just get influenced. And, and I always tell people, even if, let's say, you're a rock drummer and you don't want to be a jazz drummer, listen to some jazz. Because if you can take that and bring it into your rock drumming, it's going to separate you from all the other rock drummers out there or blues or whatever. Big thing for me was when I started getting into... Bands like The Black Crows, Blues Traveler, uh, Widespread Panic, uh, Dave Matthews Band, mm -hmm. Jamiroquai even. Um, yeah. I mean, I could go from listening to Pantera and then throw on Pink Floyd and <laughs> then throw on Jamiroquai and learning about groove and funk and the Chili Peppers and, and, you know, then getting back in old Parliament, Funkadelic and stuff like that and James Brown and all that. And that, I mean, Black Crows especially because, you know, the first two albums kind of had a country blues thing, but then they became kind of a funk band. Yeah. 
And I just, and I love every one of the records, but that was a big thing, Blues Traveler 2, that really came into my drumming, and I realized, I gotta make this feel good. I gotta make people move their heads. It's not just boom, boom, pop, boom, boom, you know? And that that was a big Steve Gorman from Black Crows, huge influence on me. Wow. Um, and that was, I always look at that early 90s as a huge thing of like, just my drumming mind just split open. Yeah. It's like, wow, there's a lot more I can take out there that still have that rock foundation but just I learned and, and adapted so much more to my drumming from it yeah well you know that early 90s just music as a whole you had the new stuff coming in me and him talk about this all the time the new stuff coming in the stuff from the 80s and then mm-hmm. like all the heavy stuff like all came together at once mm-hmm. that kind and of 92 and 91 like 92 were in state, yeah. even just a huge state some of the 80s bands that still are around like like Tesla I credit oh, yeah. one of their best albums was that Psychotic Supper that came out mm-hmm. in 91. Or a lot of the bands from the 80s that were going away and getting pushed away, I thought were putting out some really good stuff. Yeah. But like, yeah. groove metal. You know, Vinnie Paul from Pantera came around. I'm like, wow, you can be fast but still have groove. Yeah. Um, that was a huge influence. And then I got into Anthrax. And then, you know, that opened up. Then Megadeth. And that, you know, and even <laughs> as what, say whatever you will, people today about Lars Ulrich, what he did on the Injustice for All album was was mind-blowing yeah, to it's me. Nuts. Huge influence. Now, I don't know if back then they chopped it all together and did it Pro Tools like they did on the Black Album a lot of it. I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> all I know is there is so much on that album that influenced the hell. Queensryche, uh, Scott Rockenfeld, is still a huge influence mm-hmm. on me. I love, you know, when we do Silent Lucidity with, with Dead Metal Society, which is one of my favorite songs and one of my favorite songs to play, still it's like a math problem. Because <laughs> he would do, th- he would go an extra measure. He would, you know, or, or Philly would throw in that you wouldn't think if you heard it by itself would fit, but it fit musically perfectly. And sometimes I'm playing that song and I'm like, okay, one, two, three, because, you know, because it's like, it's not just meat yeah. and potatoes. You have to think about it, but it flowed very musically. And that was a big thing, making your drums musical. You know, yeah. not everything has to be a solo. Not everything, I tell my students, play what's right for the song. You wouldn't want to have Neil Peart in ACDC, and you wouldn't want to have ACDC's drummer in Rush. <laughs> you know, it, just, it wouldn't work. So too many drummers overplay, some drummers underplay. Yeah. You know, I'm sure I had my thing of overplaying. I, when I was young, I looked at every song, like, when in Spine, the early days of Spine. How can I do something in this song that's going to prove to people I'm a good drummer? And Jim, our singer, who started as a drummer, he was very influential about... Why don't you just cut all that right now, be a drum machine, play as simple as you can, let us get our parts out, and then build. And that helped me so much, cause, and sometimes I wanted to throw a stick at him, because I would sit there yawning. This is so boring. Looking back, it was the smartest thing to do, because I'm just being a drum machine, they're getting their rhythms out, they're getting, and then I'm hearing, okay, Scott's doing this on the bass, Jim does this on the guitar, I'm gonna add that on the bass drum, I'm gonna, and that's how our songs developed, and so that's why, I think on Monsoon, especially being older and I was 19 on a lot of that stuff, it's a lot more unbridled than on Attention Please. But I'm more proud of what I played on Attention Please because I think it just fits the songs better. You know, so it's not about, I said, I tell my students, if you play what's right for the song, you get people move their heads and you can keep a groove going, you are playing what's right for that song. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's. Again, bottom line is I'm just lucky to be where I am today. Great, great wife, great baby. I <laughs> finally had a baby two years ago. And great bands, great guys I surround myself with. And, and I can't say this enough. I knock on wood every day that I, I'm doing what I do. Right on, right on. Well, to bring it back around to the beginning, 
This is like one last thing I just mm-hmm. wondered because I always kind of wonder this. When you're teaching, do you, are you sitting there and they're sitting there, or are you sitting in the chair and just listen to them and telling them? It depends on the student. I, I've um, always I, this sounds stupid. I've always just wondered, can you just do it by just watching them? What I do most of the time, I'm sitting here, or I'm sitting watching my, my students from the side to make sure no bad habits are developing, make sure their foot's working correctly. Then once they have a beat down, I'll play with them. So that's the only thing I can help them with learning how to play with somebody. Where the big thing I try and get on them, which took me a lot of years to, to get comfortable <laughs> with, is if you make a small mistake, keep going. Don't let it show on your face. Because that distracts the crowd. They're going, what's wrong with the drummer? Something just happened. And they lose sight of the song. I've learned over many years to just laugh it off, you know. Or so many times I played what I thought was the worst show of my life. And someone would come up and go, that was the best I've ever seen you play. And I'm like, didn't you hear in that one song, that woman? And I realized if you're not a drummer, most of the time people aren't catching it. So yeah. now I laugh it off. So I'll play with my students and get to the point of like, no, you just keep going. Stay with me. Catch up with me. Stay with me. And that really helps them not have time to get upset with themselves. You know? so, or they'll have more advanced students where, hey, you know what, today we're just going to play together and switch off fills. So I do do a lot of both, but most of my younger drummers, I'm sitting, I'm watching them, and then I'll show them the beat and go, now listen to, to how it's supposed to sound. Okay. So it's it depends on the student. Yeah. Again, you got to treat everyone as an individual. Yeah. Right on. Oh, oh. All right. Anything else? I this? got a final question. Yeah, please. <laughs> favorite spine song and favorite kiss song. <sighs> I can tell you mine. Ready, set, go, and unholy. <laughs> wow. Unholy. Okay. Yes. Okay. Ready, Set, Go is one that comes to mind. Ready, Set, Go and Work Song are probably two that always come to mind. And it's not just, and I don't look at it as just what I did on the song, it's just as a song. Um, Wallflower is another one that I love because that was the first new song I learned with the band that I got to be a part of the writing. As far as Kiss goes, early days, Love Her All I Can, Off Dress to Kill, Coming Home, Off Hotter Than Hell. That's a good one. (laughs) Good one. <laughs> uh, you can't just pick one. Uh, uh, Save your love off Dynasty. No. Uh, <laughs> I, it's, you Final can't. Question is this Trent? <laughs> All right, favorite Kiss solo album. <laughs> What's yours? Paul Stanley. Yeah, probably, probably. Paul Stanley. I think overall Paul, but I love Aces too. If you just want a good rock album, Aces, but Paul's just a lot of depth to it. Yeah, I love that album. Peter's is the worst. <laughs> yes. Just because I think everyone was expecting something totally different. Yeah. And it's like, and especially being a drummer, I'm like, what? What is this? And I forget my dad after he left the band, my dad went on a business trip to Japan and came back with his first solo album after Kiss called Out of Control. And I still have it on LP. And I'm like, awesome. Maybe this is better. And I put it on. I'm like, oh no. Oh. But thank God I kept it. I go, I'm gonna hold on to this just in case. Yeah. yeah you never know. I don't think he's gonna sell many of these. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank to you guys. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I hope I didn't get long-winded with stuff, but I, you no, know, not I love, at all. This that's what great. it's about. Yeah. I love talking about you know just what brought me to here and pay respect to the people that helped get me here. You know, much respect to my parents and my friends, and I've had nothing but support in my life. So, hell yeah, yeah I do try and pass that on. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Well, thanks. No problem. Thank you guys. There you have it. Our talk with Jason Gilardi. Check out Dead Metal Society on Facebook. It's DMS Rocks. They're going to be in Emporia, Kansas on September 19th at the Granada Theater. Then they're going to be in Fayetteville, Arkansas on the 25th playing the Bikes, Blues, and Barbecue Festival. 
Then the the very next day, they'll be in Miami, Oklahoma at the Buffalo Run Casino. And then in October, they've got dates in Salem Springs, as well as Halloween at the Brady Theater. They're playing the, the Halloween party, which I think they've done several years now. Then in November, they'll be back in Miami at Buffalo Run. They're playing the Venue Shrine in Tulsa and the Cherokee Casino again in December in Salem Springs. So be sure and check this band out live. If you're into to 80s rock and metal, you won't be disappointed with what you see. I can promise you that. Check us out online again, thethunderunderground.com. Check out our previous podcast. And if you're listening to this because you're a fan of Dead Metal Society or you know Jason, then you probably know Nine, who is the bass player in both Dead Metal Society and Amped with Jason. And... We did a podcast with him several weeks ago. It was episode 9. Very clever there, right? So go pull that up. Check that one out as well. And of course, check out all the rest of them. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 